I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 13. And as you turn there, let me pray for us. Father, we just sung of the final days of our Savior's life, where he entered Jerusalem to bear our sin, to put sin and death to death, and to rise from the dead, declaring himself victorious over sin and death. But now, Lord, we come to the beginning, in a sense, of his story, the beginning of his gospel, where he appears on the scene. And we ask, Lord, that by your Spirit, you would cause us to understand this text, but not just understand it, but that we would understand it in such a way that it would create in us affection and worship for our Lord. We pray that you would do this by your Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we know from history that there's been moments that have shaped and altered human history in drastic ways. For example, like the American Revolution. But we not also know that there's been moments in history, but there's also been figures, individuals who have shaped and altered history. For example, Alexander the Great, or, in a more negative sense, Adolf Hitler. But there's been no figure that has altered and shaped human history more than the person of Jesus Christ. He is the most controversial, controversial figure who has ever walked the earth. Some hate him, some don't even believe he existed, others worship him. Millions of people across the world, in fact billions, identify in some way with the person of Jesus Christ. As I said, many view him today as a mere fictional character, an old wives' tale of people who needed a hero. There are others who view him as a great moral teacher, a prophet, so to speak, someone to, to base your life off of. But these will not be satisfactory explanations for this character called Jesus. For the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they will not allow for us to conclude really such silly notions. The gospel accounts confront us with who Jesus actually is and what he came to do and what that means for each one of us. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are historical, that is, they are displaying or explaining what actually happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus entered the scene. But they are not only historical, they are also theological. That is, the, the writers write in such a way to convey theological truths, truths about God in regards to the person of Jesus Christ, in regards to his life, his death, and his resurrection. They're meant to reveal to us who Jesus is and what he's done. It's as if each gospel account displays a somewhat different portrait of the one Jesus. 
They're all true, but they all capture, they all identify different aspects of the one Jesus. Now this morning, we're beginning a series in the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to be specifically looking at the portrait that Mark gives of Jesus. Now before we look at this passage, I just need to give you a little bit of warning, specifically for this sermon. This sermon is going to be a little technical. It's going to be a little more academic than usual. And so I'm going to call you to really think, to engage, to wrestle with what's in the text. This won't be like my typical sermons, so to speak. So Mark begins his gospel account differently than he does Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke record the birth narratives of Jesus, whereas Mark skips over all of that And he begins precisely at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's extremely abrupt. There's no introduction, so to speak. It just kind of happens. Mark just kind of brings it forward. But but that's kind of how Mark has put his account together. Mark uses a specific word through this gospel that, that carries the narrative. And it's the word immediately. And even in this morning's passage, you're going to see that he uses it twice. You'll see it over and over again. It's the way he he moves forward the story, the narrative of Jesus Christ. Now, unlike Matthew and Luke, Mark's account is fast-paced. It's written in such a way as to feel like it's almost live reporting. Like if there was a war and there was a, a news reporter on scene, it's written in such a way that, that it's, he's being able to tell you at moment after moment, this is what's happening. It's to make you feel like you're in the story, so to speak. You're present. So Mark begins his gospel with a summary statement in verse 1. This is what he says. Really, you could say this is the title of his record. The beginning of the gospel that is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So from this statement, Mark is setting out to demonstrate that Jesus is, one, truly the Christ, that is the Messiah, the anointed of God, the agent of salvation. Secondly, the Son of God. And not only that, he is the one who brings the gospel. He is the one who brings good news to the world. And the unfolding of the narrative by Mark is to reveal this to his readers so they may believe in him. Mark tells us from the very beginning who Jesus is, but, but we need to remember that the characters in the narrative don't know who he is yet. There's suspense regarding who Jesus is. And as readers, it's important for us to almost try and enter into the narrative so that we feel the suspense and the tension regarding who Jesus is. The gospel unfolds in such a way that by the end of it all, the reader, you and I, must decide what to do with Jesus. So Mark begins with his title, but then he turns his attention not to Jesus, but to an individual who's been given the task of preparing the coming of Jesus. And so from verses 2 to 8, we learn of the preparer of the Lord. And Mark begins by by quoting from the Old Testament. Look at verses 2 and 3. 
As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now he states, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, but Mark is actually quoting from two different prophets here. But he emphasizes Isaiah because Isaiah is kind of like the steering wheel to the narrative about what's going to unfold. Now the first quote, the first passage in the Old Testament in verse 2 is Malachi 3.1 and the second is Isaiah 43. Now these two prophecies from the Old Testament are in reference to an individual who will prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And in order to grasp the significance of both, it's important we look at each of them separately. So in verse 2, Mark quotes Malachi 3.1. And he says this, Behold, I, so the I there is God. I, that is God, send my messenger. And as we'll discover, the messenger is John the Baptist. So I, that is God, send my messenger John before your face. Who's the your face? Who will prepare your way? So who's the your face and who's the your way? Well, the answer is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So, so the idea here is, I, God, will send my messenger, John, before your face, Jesus, who will prepare your way, Jesus. What we have here is, is a picture of God the Father speaking to his begotten Son about what he's going to do in redemptive history. There's a messenger that God will send who will prepare the way for his son, Jesus Christ. Now, verse 3 is taken from Isaiah 40, and we read here in verse 3, the voice, so the voice is now parallel with the messenger from verse 2. So the voice and the messenger are the same person. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now that word wilderness is important. We're going to touch on that near the end, but keep that in the back of your head. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So this voice, who is the messenger, has been given the task of preparing the way of the Lord. Now, in Isaiah 43, the word that is used for Lord is the word that is used for God's covenant name, Yahweh. Yahweh. Also, in Isaiah 43, the verse ends with, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In other words, what the Old Testament is prophesying and what Mark's demonstrating is that God, Yahweh, is sending forth a messenger who will prepare the way for Yahweh. God's sending forth a messenger who will prepare the people for the coming of God. And what we discover is that the messenger is John the Baptist, and the coming of Yahweh, which would have been a surprise to everyone, is the person, Jesus Christ. Yahweh has come in human flesh in the person of Christ. God has showed up. But there's one other thing we need to note in regards to these prophecies. Both Malachi 3 
and Isaiah 40 speak of this individual who will prepare the coming of the Lord. But the context in which both of these things are declared are completely different. In Malachi 3, the context is judgment. In other words, the coming of the Lord is a day of judgment according to Malachi chapter 3. But Isaiah 43 is in the context of mercy and salvation. In other words, the the coming of the Lord is a day of salvation according to Isaiah 40. How can this be? How, How can the coming of Yahweh both be a time of salvation and a time of judgment? Well, the answer to that lies within within the response of the people to the coming of the Lord. In other words, those who reject Jesus as Lord will experience his coming as judgment. Whereas those who repent and embrace him will experience his coming as salvation. And you see this theme unfolding throughout Mark's gospel. Those who harden their hearts to Christ are experiencing and will experience God's judgment. And those who respond in repentance and faith are experiencing and will experience the salvation of God. And the same is true today. Those who harden their hearts towards Jesus Christ are experiencing the judgment of God and will experience the judgment of God. And those who humble themselves and repent will experience Christ as salvation and will experience his final salvation in the future. How you respond to Christ truly matters. So Mark begins his account of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God, by quoting two passages in the Old Testament. And these two passages demonstrate that God declared that he would send a messenger who would prepare the way for the Lord, who we know to be none other than Jesus. And this coming of the Lord is both a time of salvation and a time of judgment. Now, why does Mark begin his gospel record with these prophecies? Well, one... He's demonstrating that everything that's that's about to unfold is rooted in previous revelation. Mark's not bringing something new to the table. He's merely unfolding with greater clarity something that was already foretold long ago. Throughout the Old Testament, God had promised the people of Israel that he would one day bring about a glorious salvation where he would put an end to all wickedness and deliver his people from their sins. And it's been over 300 years since God last spoke, but now God's on the move again. Mark's demonstrating that what God declared in the Old Testament is beginning to come to fruition here in Mark chapter 1. Secondly, the the reason he begins his account with this prophecy is so that we might see that what he records next is precisely a fulfillment of these prophecies. In verses 4 to 8, we're introduced to the messenger, the voice, and in verses 9 to 11 were introduced to the Lord. In other words, verses 4 to 11 
are the fulfillment of these prophecies that Mark records for us. So first, the messenger. Look at verses 4 and 8. John appeared. So these prophecies are told. John appeared as the fulfillment of these prophecies, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So there's two things we learn about this messenger who will prepare the way for the Lord. The first is his identity, and the second is his message. So first, his identity. We're told, of course, his name is John. But in verse 6, we're given a description of his appearance. He's clothed in camel's hair. He wears a leather belt around his waist, waist and he eats locusts and honey. That is, he's a man of the wilderness. Now, why does Mark see it necessary to tell us the appearance of John? Well, in Malachi 4-5, God promises to send Elijah the prophet before the great day of the coming of the Lord. And what's interesting, Malachi 4-5 are the last words that God speaks in the Old Testament. It's the very last thing that he says. He tells the people of Israel, he promises them that he's going to send the prophet Elijah to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He says in Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Those are the last words that God speaks in the Old Testament. See, the reason we're given this description of John is to demonstrate that John is the Elijah that God promised. Because in 1 Kings 1, 8, we're given a similar description of the actual prophet Elijah. But what Mark's declaring is that with the appearance of John, the awesome day of the Lord is at the doorsteps of Israel. A new era, so to speak, is about to begin. The coming of Elijah is a major turning point in the history of God's redemption. God's about to do something that he's never done before in human history. John the Baptist, who is Elijah, has come to prepare the people for the great day of the coming of Yahweh himself. So that's his identity. But secondly, we learn of his message. And there's two parts to his message. The first, he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, sins. In John's task of preparing For the way of the coming of the Lord, he's calling the people to repentance. That is to turn their hearts away from sin and to turn their hearts toward God. And the act by which the people do this is the baptism that John provides. A baptism in water which symbolized the the purification of sin and the, the rising to new life. You see, really... In John's preparing the way for the Lord, he's actually preparing the people for the coming of the Lord. 
And it was through this baptism of repentance that the people of Israel were being prepared. As we read in verse 5 that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. There was a multitude of people who were responding to the call of John the Baptist. In other words, there was almost like a mini revival taking place in Israel. Not all the Israelites, as we know, many of the Israelites rejected Jesus and rejected John. But there was this mini revival that was preparing the people for the Messiah. John's message of repentance was already beginning to draw a line in Israel. Between those who would respond rightly to the coming of the Lord and those who would respond wrongly to the coming of the Lord. John divided the people of Israel just as Jesus divided the people of Israel. So this was the the first aspect of his message. He was calling Israel to repentance, to prepare their hearts. But not only that, he's also proclaiming the actual coming of the Messiah. As he says in verse 7, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is why God raised John up. To declare to the people that there was one coming who was greater than he. That though he came after John, he was greater than John. So great is this one to come that John believes that he himself is unworthy to even stoop down and untie the dirty sandals of this figure. The role of a slave. But what is it that makes him greater than John? We could simply say it's that he's Yahweh, God. He's greater because he's God in the flesh. And though that's true, that's not the focus of his greatness in these verses. What makes this one to come greater than John is that the baptism he brings is superior to John's baptism. I have baptized you with water, John says, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Meaning, this Jesus will immerse his people in the Spirit of God. In the Old Testament, God spoke of a day when he would pour out his Spirit upon his people. So they would walk in his ways, that they would be his people and he their God. This was, in many ways, the central focus of the New Covenant. It is the Spirit, the the, the New Covenant of the Holy Spirit, so to speak. We see this specifically in Ezekiel 36, 25-28. God is speaking to Israel, and this is what God says. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, the coming of the Son of God will be a turning point in redemptive history. God delivered Israel out of the Exodus. He made a covenant with them, but they were unfaithful to the covenant. 
Because of their unfaithfulness, God brought judgment upon Israel by sending them into captivity, the the Babylonian captivity. And though after 70 years God brought them back to the promised land, they still never truly experienced salvation and liberty from their sins. But the Old Testament spoke of a second exodus where God himself would deliver his people from their sins and also give them the Spirit of God so they may walk in his ways. And it's here that John declares that this is going to happen. The one to come, this one to come, will accomplish salvation and will immerse his people in the Holy Spirit. And the reason he will immerse his people in the Holy Spirit is due to who he is. He is Yahweh the Lord. As we read in Ezekiel, it was the Lord who promised Israel to give his people a new heart and to put his spirit within them. Jesus will be the one to bring about the spirit-filled salvation because Jesus is none other than the Lord. So the coming of John the Baptist is a turning point. It's a turning point in what God is up to. It's a turning point in salvation history. John, in the spirit of Elijah, has been given a task to prepare the way for the Lord. Prophecy is being fulfilled. So from verses 2 to 8, we see the preparer of the Lord. Secondly, from verses 9 to 11, we see the commissioning of the Son of God. Mark records that John the Baptist was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was declaring that this one to come would be greater than he. He would baptize his people in the Holy Spirit. And in 9 to 11, the one that John speaks of appears. Look at verses 9 to 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now there's a ton here for us to unpack. We need to understand the significance of his baptism, the significance of the spirit descending upon him like a dove, the significance of the voice from heaven. So first, the significance of Jesus being baptized. Why was he baptized? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But we know that Jesus was sinless. He was the perfect, sinless Son of God. So why would he get baptized by John? Well, in Jesus being baptized by John, he was identifying with sinful humanity. He placed himself among the guilty. Not for his own salvation, but for ours. He was declaring through his act of baptism that humanity needed to be purged from sin. He was identifying with us. And as the agent of salvation, the means by which this would come about is by him taking sinful humanity upon himself, taking human flesh and killing sinful human flesh in his death. See, his baptism is a symbol of this very act. He goes under the water where sin is washed away and he comes out in newness of life. In other words, Jesus' baptism in water, hear this, 
is a prefiguring of his baptism of salvation. What do I mean by that? How does Jesus describe his crucifixion? How does he describe his death on the cross? Well, in Mark 10, 37 to 38, Jesus is speaking about how he's going to be handed over to the, to the, to the Roman rulers. He's going to be betrayed by his own people and he's going to be crucified. And two of his disciples, James and John, in that moment come to him with arrogance and entitlement. And they basically say, Jesus, in your kingdom of glory, he's, he, right in this context, he's speaking about his suffering. But they're like, Lord, in your kingdom of glory, may we sit at your right hand and your left hand. And how does Jesus respond? Well, we read this in Mark 10, 37 to 38. How does Jesus describe his, his crucifixion? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? What's the cup? It's his death, the judgment where he's going to bear the sin of the world. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus is referring to his death at this very moment. He describes his suffering and death for sinful humanity as a baptism. Not only that, what happens when Jesus comes up out of the water? We're told immediately that the heavens were torn open. Now, there's one other place in Mark's gospel where he uses that same word, torn open, about the heavens being ripped open, and it's at his crucifixion. In Mark 15, 37 to 38, we read this, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain that guarded the way to the presence of God, in a sense, into the heavens, was torn open. At his baptism, the heavens were torn open and the Spirit descended upon him. At his death, the curtain is torn open. And by that curtain being torn open, the Spirit will now descend upon his own followers. Or as John puts it, Jesus will now, through his crucifixion, baptize his people in the Holy Spirit. This is the significance of his baptism. He identifies with sinful humanity and his baptism prefigures his death by which he accomplishes salvation for all who will believe upon him. But what about the spirit descending upon him? What's the significance of this? Well, in the Old Testament, specifically in Isaiah, God speaks of his servant who will accomplish his redemptive purposes. We're told that this servant will be the suffering servant who will die for the sins of his people. But in Isaiah, God declares that he's going to put his spirit upon his servant. 
Several places he said this, but in Isaiah 42, 1, we read, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Or in Isaiah 11, 2, we're told that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. In other words, here, with the spirit descending upon Jesus at his baptism, God's declaring that this is my servant who will accomplish my salvation. And it's in this moment that God commissions Jesus for the task that lay before him. John baptizes, but God commissions Jesus. Mark's demonstrating that this Jesus is the suffering servant that Isaiah had prophesied and was now being commissioned by God For the purpose of redemption. But we also see in this passage that Jesus isn't simply God's servant. He's also his beloved son. He's baptized. The spirit descends on him like a dove. And a voice comes from heaven declaring, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The father, the eternal father, gives his eternal son the words of affirmation that will commission him to fulfill his ministry. This is the first moment in the narrative where someone other than the narrator acknowledges the sonship of Jesus Christ. Here it's his heavenly father. And as we'll see, Mark unfolds the story in such a way that there will be other significant moments where Jesus will be acknowledged as the Son of God. This is Jesus' commissioning service, so to speak. He is commissioned by his Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to accomplish salvation as the Son of God. Here we see the triune God at work in redemption. The Father sends the Son and bestows on Him the gift of the Spirit to empower the Son for His mission of salvation that He will accomplish through His life, death, and resurrection. Jesus has been commissioned by His heavenly Father to accomplish our salvation. And it's at this point where he's immediately driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Look at verses 12 to 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. You know, it's interesting that Mark barely references the temptation narrative in comparison to Matthew and Luke. But there's reason for this. Mark sets up the the temptation narrative as a foreshadowing of the entirety of Jesus' ministry. In other words, the temptation narrative doesn't end in verse 13. It carries on through the whole story. Jesus is at war with Satan and all his demonic soldiers. But here we see Jesus prevail as the commissioned Son of God in a way that Israel didn't. As you've noticed, there's this prevailing theme in these verses regarding the wilderness. Three times the wilderness is mentioned. 
And this isn't a coincidence. Remember, it was the wilderness that God brought Israel to after he saved them from Egypt and declared that Israel was now his firstborn son. They went through the Red Sea, their baptism, and entered into the wilderness where they were tempted, but they failed in their call to be the firstborn son of God. And now here in Mark, the wilderness theme has been invoked again. In other words, a second exodus is about to happen. Jesus will be the Son of God who will enter into the wilderness and will face the enemies of God. But unlike Israel, he will not fail in his task as the Son of God. He will fulfill his ministry. He will be the obedient Son. You see, verses 9 through 13 is really a foreshadowing of everything that's going to unfold through the rest of this gospel. Jesus is going to go toe-to-toe with Satan and his opponents, and he will prevail against them, and through his death and resurrection, prefigured in his baptism, he will accomplish the second exodus, where he will ransom people and deliver from sin all who embrace him as Savior and Lord. These verses set the stage for what is going to happen in the coming verses and chapters. So we've seen the preparing of Jesus by John the Baptist. We've seen the commissioning of Jesus, who is the Son of God by the Father. And we've seen the temptation of Christ, where he's driven into the wilderness and does battle with Satan as the sinless Son of God. But what does this all mean for us? What does it matter if Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world, was baptized, was tempted by Satan? What does it matter? Well, it matters because it's true. If the Son of God really did come into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, it matters more than anything else in this world. See, Jesus didn't come into this world and was baptized and then went into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for himself. He did that for you and I. He came into this world and was baptized, faced temptation as a human, yet overcame it and then lived and died and rose again so that as the head of humanity, he would grant salvation to all who trust in him. You see, we're told in the scriptures that, that by faith we are united to Christ in such a way that his life becomes ours. That's why Paul over and over can say in the scriptures the same idea my life is hidden in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see, Christ becomes the Christian's life when we embrace him by faith. All that he does, all that he accomplishes, becomes ours. His obedience becomes ours. His death becomes ours. His resurrection becomes ours. You see, John the Baptist was calling people to repentance to prepare themselves for the coming of Christ. But now we live on the opposite side of the cross. Jesus has already come. But the Bible does tell us that he's coming again. And in his second coming, there will not be time for people to repent 
and believe. When he comes, he is coming as the righteous judge of the universe. There will be no escape for any human being. When he returns, he will bring his judgment on all who have refused to believe because of their love for sin and rebellion against him. But he will also, when he comes, bring salvation for all who have believed and have treasured and loved him above life itself. You see, he comes to divide the righteous from the wicked. And what separates the righteous from the wicked is not good works. What separates the righteous from the wicked is repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my question for you this morning, friend, will you be like the people we read about who went out into the wilderness repenting of their sins and finding forgiveness? Or will you be like the religious leaders that we are going to read about who hardened their hearts in regards to Jesus? Which one will define you? How will you respond to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? I pray that you would respond rightly to Jesus. You won't regret it. And if you're a Christian here this morning, take comfort in this. Everything Jesus does is for you. He he came into the world to ransom his people. He's baptized to identify with us in our sinfulness. He's anointed by the Spirit to be the suffering servant for us. So that we too will receive the Spirit that He received. He's tempted in the wilderness for us, yet He prevails where we have failed. He does all of this so that the words spoken to Him, This is my beloved Son, with Him I am well pleased may be spoken to you. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Christ, as the Son of God, does all that is necessary so that we might share in his sonship. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, help us to see Jesus for who he actually is. Cause the blind to see and the deaf to hear this morning. And Lord, help us to live and to reflect the one we claim to follow. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.